It's our job to tell better stories. And always remember, it's the risk takers that are rewarded. People are sick and tired of being marketed to, and they're sick and tired of being sold. The single biggest story today in sales and marketing is how our customers are buying different Hey everyone, and welcome to the Growth of Podcast brought to you by growth marketing agency Advance B2B. It's your host here, Edward Ford, and joining us today on the show is Ryan Benici, CMO at G2. This episode is all about how you can 10x your career growth as a marketer, as Ryan talks about the factors behind how he made it to the C-suite of marketing before the age of 30, which is actually a role Ryan wanted when he was 12 years old. Now, Ryan began his career in his native Australia, where he worked at companies including Microsoft, Exact Target, and Salesforce, before moving to HubSpot, where he became head of marketing for the JPAC region. From there, Ryan became CMO at G2 and has since been named in Forbes' list of the world's most influential CMOs. In this episode, we discuss how you can map out your career path, set goals and milestones, successfully move from an individual contributor to a proficient manager, and how you can actually manage upwards and manage your manager. Ryan also shares some of the characteristics and skills he looks for when hiring, how you should discuss raises and promotions, and how to deal with challenges you might face in your career, including things like imposter syndrome and career anxiety. And if you have goals to move into a marketing leadership position, such as VP or CMO, then Ryan also explains the skills you need and how you can work towards these roles. Now, there is a lot of other stuff packed into this episode as well. And of course, stay tuned to the end of the episode where Ryan takes on our Fast Five Challenge. So here it is, episode 42 of the Growth Hub Podcast with Ryan Benici, CMO at G2. Welcome to another episode of the Growth of Podcast, and it's my pleasure to welcome Ryan Benici, CMO at G2, to the show. So, Ryan, thank you so much for joining us today here on the Growth of Podcast. Thanks for having me, Edward. Yeah, super, super excited to dig into this one as we're talking about how to 10x your career growth. And I can actually think a few better people to discuss this with since you've achieved so much in a pretty short amount of time during your career. So to start, I would love to know, when did you first realize you wanted to work in marketing? Because I heard you mentioned Harry Stebbings on the SASTA podcast that when you were 12, you wanted to become a CMO. <laughs> so can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, it's funny. So I, um, I've just always known that I wanted to be in our industry. And I think, I think maybe, you know, I think memory is, is always evolving, but I think actually back then when I was about 10 or 12, I really wanted to be like an advertising executive. Um, and so I'm not sure if like I even knew what the concept of a CMO was back then, but I knew I wanted to be like, a, um, you know, a leader within like the marketing advertising world, um, which is kind of weird, right? For like a 10 year old kid to just like have um, <laughs> that kind of ambition. And then again, I'm not sure if it was when I was 10, when then the ambition kind of evolved, but it was, it stayed as what it was. And then it became, I needed to be that by the age of 30. <laughs> right. um, Again, just, you know, I was a very odd kid, clearly. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, that was, it just, I, I think what for me, what it was is I was, you know, back then it was still back in the days of kind of like madman era for marketing, right? When I was 10. And so, you know, it was a lot of billboards, a lot of like above the line. This was kind of like, you know, the internet was like still getting started. It was dial up modem. So the internet and digital wasn't what it was, what it is today. And so, um, 
yeah, I think I just love the ability for people to be able to do these big campaigns and take these big creative messages to markets to then drive revenue. And that always just always excited me. Yeah, that's awesome. And you did it hitting the C-suite in marketing before the age of 30. So as you grew up and started your career, how did you actually go about specific goals and milestones that you wanted to achieve on the road to becoming a CMO and then actually go about accomplishing them? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I, I, I guess there's a few ways to think about it. So, you know, I've always been very focused in my career on learning new things um, and learning new things in different segments. So, you know, when I started my career at Microsoft, I was in consumer marketing, actually. So I was running a program called, um, it was it was a campaign, actually, in a program called It's Not Cheating. And basically, this was, again, a long time ago. And this was back in the day when you used to buy CD discs with Microsoft, you know, Office on them. And Microsoft Office back then typically retailed, I think, for around $249. And that was a little bit out of the price point of students. And so you ran this campaign called It's Not Cheating, whereby you could get all of Office for $99 if you used a student email address. Um, and so it was, and it was a, it was kind of like, I think one of Microsoft's very first ever digital products because we sold it online, you downloaded it, um, and then you were up and running. And so I started my career in consumer marketing and then realized that as I started to work more and more with our B2B sales team at Microsoft, I was really interested in learning how that worked. And so I then transitioned to a company called exact target, which was a, you know, a big kind of omni-channel email marketing, SMS, mobile marketing company, um, which sold to Salesforce for a few cheeky billion dollars. And, um, and so, you know, when I was there, I then kind of started to like flesh out the B2B marketing skills of, of, of my toolkit, I guess. Um, and that was really fun. And then once I had joined Salesforce, then I was focusing a lot more on like enterprise B2B marketing. So, you know, you can do B2B marketing to the masses to, or to like a very specific segment at Salesforce. It was very kind of like fortune 500 focused. And so, you know, the tactics that you use at that level are very different to what we were using at exact target and, and at Microsoft. And so, you know, I think for me then once I had started to refine that playbook and know it intimately well and start to even kind of like rewrite pages of that playbook, that's when I start to think to myself, okay, cool. Like I've learned everything that there is or, you know, a lot of what there is in this new segment or this new space. And I've even actually pushed that segment or space forward at the company that I'm working for by innovating and, you know, creating new programs that they had never done before. Um, and that's when I start to get bored and, and I start to look for not, not, um, not kind of like proactively look, but I, that's when I start to kind of be more interested in like what else is out there as recruiters reach out to me, because then I'm like, okay, you know, I, I've had really strong impact at the company that I'm at. Um, what else can I go and learn and impact at other businesses? And so, um, yeah, so it's been, it's been pretty like, um, methodical in a sense, but, but it's, but not in the sense of like, you know, if I think back 10 years, like I didn't, it's not like I exactly knew the path I would take to get where I am today, because I think, you know, at every sort of, um, like role change, there's different directions I could go. And so there's kind of always a few different paths that I have out ahead of me that, um, I'm happy to kind of go down and depending on what sort of opportunities arise and different people I meet, et cetera, then I, then I start to maybe then make a decision of which path will I go down. 
Absolutely. And, and I think that's a really good point in that there are multiple paths marketers can take when it comes to careers, whether that's becoming an expert in a certain field, going into management, leadership, pursuing a CMO role, going in-house agency side. I think the list goes on. So how should marketers actually think about and map out their own career path? Yeah, good question. I mean, I think it like comes down to, yeah, knowing, knowing initially anyways, like where you want to be. And I think, you know, I was always really crystal clear that I knew I did want to be in that sort of chief marketing role. Um, but that said, there's so many different types of CMO roles, right? There's, you know, right now I'm a CMO of, you know, the world's biggest technology marketplace. And so there's a part of what marketplace marketing involves that I didn't have as much experience in that I've been learning um, but, you know, I mean, I'm also interested in consumer marketplaces like Airbnb and would love to work as a CMO or a chief, you know, customer or digital officer for an Airbnb or someone like that in the future. And so, again, they're both CMO roles, but totally different kind of like sales actions, totally different buyers, totally different products. And so, anyway, I think like what, at least if you know kind of like the role and where you want to get to, then you can start to look at like the different paths to get there. Um, and I think. Um, you know, any path works, but I, I would say that regardless of whether you go down like the expert path, the manager path, the leader path, the agency path, you know, there's so many, I think what's important to make sure you're doing is breadthening and like, like kind of extending the breadth and the depth of your skill set. So I think what, what I, what I want to say that's important there is that like, if you want to become a CMO, then you don't want to specialize too deeply in any sector at the expense of learning others. Um, so I don't mean you should just be a generalist across everywhere, but I mean, uh, you know, you should have some deep expertise in a few different places and ideally lots of places. But I think if you just become the, the search and SEM expert, like you're never going to become a CMO without a few roles in between. You can't just jump from that role to a CMO and now start being responsible for events and social media and ad campaigns. And like you need to have kind of started to get experience in those different areas. And so I guess ultimately my recommendation here in terms of what paths people should take is, you know, once you know where you want to go, think about like what are the different skill sets that, that person needs um, and a really easy way, I guess, to, to, to work that out is to, to read job descriptions for CMOs out there in, in from companies that you might want to work at and see, because they'll outline like you need experience managing a team, you need experience, you know, running global events, you need experience managing, you know, a multi-million dollar budget, etc. Um, and then I think you can start to work out, okay, how do I get like a lot of those things like on my belt that I know how to do them and know how to do them well. Um, and you don't need all of them by any means, but, um, experience across all of them in different capacities, I think is key. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one big challenge that all marketers face and need to overcome is the transition from individual contributor to effective manager at some point in their career. And I think even if you don't become a manager, you still need to actually manage yourself. But what advice would you give in terms of successfully moving from individual contributor to proficient manager? I mean, I think when making that kind of a move, um, <clears throat> I think it's it can be hard for some people to make that move because they're they're sort of like pushing themselves up to try and move into a management role and it might not be right. And I would say the easiest way to move into it and, you know, what helped me move into it really quickly was just out of sheer necessity. So, you know, when you're a part of a small team, 
um, then at, of a company that's growing really quickly, it's quite easy to make that transition from IC to manager because if you do a good job at being an IC um, and you know people like working with you and can get along with you well, it's there's not a whole lot of red flags in terms of why that person then shouldn't become a manager. Not to say that's the only path by by all means, but um, but that I think can make it really easily because out of necessity you, you need to do that. Um, so that would be like one thing to think of is like joining companies that are in hyper growth mode because they will need more roles and then management of those roles. And so if you do a good job as an IC, it's, it's easy to then get kind of tapped on the shoulder. Um, I think the other thing I would say is that like depending on your performance and how impactful you as an IC are on the business that can then kind of build a team out of the fact that like what you were doing is driving so much impact. So let's say as an example, you're a, you know, a digital marketer for a company and you're maybe like focused on PPC. Um, if you do PPC so well to the point where that like your customer acquisition cost is in such a positive kind of state whereby you know that like for every dollar you spend, you will drive $10 of net new revenue, right? Like, you can then start to really quickly just do the maths, speak to your boss, speak to your board, um, and then scale up that kind of a spend, which then over time would mean, okay, more spend, more things can go wrong, more things can be optimized, let's hire more you know, PPC experts to help manage this budget, to help grow this budget, to help keep optimizing it. And by then kind of fact, if you were that first person that led that, like it would make sense for you to manage them. And that holds true to social media, to email marketing, to events, to any sector of marketing, really, because if you do a really good job and, you know, exceed the numbers that you were meant to deliver and drive in serious impact for your company, you know, no one will, will stop that from flourishing in a company. And if they do, then that's crazy and you shouldn't be working there. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, that would be unlikely, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if we stick with management, another big part of being successful is managing upwards, which is often an overlooked skill. So what advice would you share in terms of how you should actually manage your manager? Yeah, really good question. And something that I'm like really passionate about, and it's something that I, I never, it wasn't like I kind of set out to be like an upward manager, like and to manage up to my boss. But I think what, what I had to do early on in my career. So, you know, I think I mentioned, I don't know if we mentioned, or maybe this is before we went live, but you know, my background is I'm from Australia. I spent, you know, the first kind of first half of my career really in regional marketing roles where I was kind of functioning like a mini CMO running marketing for regions. So I ran marketing at HubSpot and Salesforce, um, an exact target for, the Asia pack region. So covering offices in Sydney and Singapore and Japan and, and teams in India. And I think what I had to learn, the reason why I mentioned that is what I had to learn really quickly was that when you aren't based in headquarters, um, it's really tough to get the resources you need to get the time you need to get the experts from HQ to fly out. Um, you really kind of have to market yourself internally. Um, and, and there's pros and cons for sure, right? Like not having those resources also means you have less scrutiny on the campaigns that you run so you can take bigger risks. And, and I certainly did in my, in my career. But I think the reason why I mentioned that is because it kind of just forced me to get good at managing up and to get good at doing internal marketing. Because if I wanted more resources, if I wanted more attention, I needed to really deliver the results. So that was, I think, just something that I was forced to do and didn't really like think about how that unfolded. And I'm really glad it did. But I think what I would say is when it comes to managing upwards, 
um, I think one thing is really key is that like, you know, no one wants to like manage someone that like is a pessimist, isn't an optimist, isn't someone that like helps solve problems. Right. So, and what I mean by that is you need to build trust with your manager, whereby your manager like loves working with you. And, and I'm referring to kind of like the person under the, maybe like the CMO or under the manager, so like an IC reporting to a manager or a manager reporting to a manager of managers. But like you need to be as that IC or as that manager, you know, reporting up to another manager, you need to be always delivering results for your boss um, and delivering kind of uh, above and beyond the results that they're asking from you firstly. Um, and again, if you're struggling to hit those goals and results, like don't just complain and bring the problems to your boss, like work out potential solutions or try certain things and then come to them with, with the results. And so a, I think it's just like you need to be a, like good, a good employee, right. And someone that adds value. Um, and I think once you are doing that, then it makes it a lot easier to manage up because you have a little bit more kind of like sweat equity in the game because your manager or your boss knows that, okay, this is like a high performer and, and naturally a boss will listen more and place more kind of trust and weight in the words that come from a high performer than comes from a low performer. You know, whether they will admit that or not, I think that's just like human nature and that's just like the fact. Um, and so I think as long as you are delivering that, it, it does kind of give you a little bit more freedom to start to then call out maybe areas for improvement or optimization in the team, in the company, um, within your product that you sell, anything really. And, and I think for me, like I, I was so focused being in region on delivering my goals and over delivering on my goals um, that it made it really easy for me, I think, to then say to my boss, like, hey, look look at all these things that I'm doing in region. Why are other teams around the world that have more resources than me not doing these things? Like, so Mr. and Mrs. Boss, like, I feel like based on my results, like, I deserve to have more people because I'm using people more effectively and driving better results. And And then I would always kind of, like, ask to my boss, like, does that seem fair? Like, is that a fair ask? And I believe that I always was making fair asks because it was very much backed on the data and my experience. And that kind of made it easy then to kind of negotiate and get what I needed to then support my boss. But I think all of this is sort of prefaced on that if you aren't already delivering for your boss, if you haven't already proven that you are a, a high performing employee that is always going to be an asset to your boss, then I don't think it's as, I don't think you should even be trying to manage up, um, nor like, will you be very successful? I don't think. Um, because managing up typically is trying to manage change and ask for things or drive or demand things that you don't have. Like I, I can't think of any thing that you would need to manage up for that wasn't outside of your, your remit. Hence why, when you're doing that, you need to really have kind of like, I think the social status and like the performance status to be able to do that. Yeah, this is fantastic. And you briefly touched on this earlier, but if marketers do have goals to move into senior roles like VP, head of marketing or CMO, then what are the skills that they need and how should they work towards this position? Well, look, yeah, I guess it, you know, it depends on, you know, what, where in marketing you want to get to. Cause I think, you know, if you, if you are moving into a, if you want to move into a role where you're a VP and there is a CMO above you, that skill set will be very different to like whether if you're a VP of marketing and there's no one but maybe the CEO above you. So let's say like if I'm, I'm assuming the way you're maybe asking this question is like, 
to be the marketing leader. If that's the case, then what I would say is, you know, the skills needed ultimately are like, what, what is it that like is going to help drive sales for your business, right? And the reason why I, I kind of center it more around kind of the selling action and more around your buyer is that, you know, I don't want to kind of suggest that like everyone should be really good at demand gen or everyone should be really good at events marketing or everyone should be really good at product marketing because um, depending on your segment, right, if you're in a really kind of, let's say a really, um, a really compressed segment where there's a lot of competitors um, so email marketing is like a good example of that. Like if you think of email marketing software, there's just so many different providers in the space um, that you start to notice that like functionality in the product is less on which in the ways like folks differentiate, they differentiate more based on price and, and more based on kind of positioning and branding in terms of like who is top of mind when they need a free email solution or, or a low cost solution. And so in that instance, like maybe having more experience with freemium online selling product qualified leads um, and positioning is key so to help you differentiate from, you know, competitors in the space, you know, and on the flip side, if you have a product that's, you know, the first of its kind, that's really different than, you know, the event also the skills needed might be more about like events in the, in, in, in the sense of you need to like connect with a really specific audience that isn't online. And the only way they meet with them is through doing, you know, high end dinners. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of rambling now, but I think like ultimately the skills needed um, depend on where your company's at and what is expected of the CMO because the CMO is such a broad role today um, and has, you know, one of the shortest tenures in the C-suite. And I think that's mainly because, um, you know, most, a lot of CMOs are asked to do things that they don't have the responsibilities or the control over to actually drive change in, in a lot of consumer companies anyways. Um, but I mean, I think, you know, if, if we've thought of just kind of like the broader skill set that gets you to be that leader, typically in my experience, what I see is there's, you know, your brand and your product marketing focus CMO or VP. Um, and then typically there's your more demand generation, Quantif quantifiable kind of growth focused CMO or VP of marketing. Um, and then I think there's obviously folks that are great that, you know, have good experience across both demand gen and positioning, branding, marketing. But um, I find like they're kind of two pretty consistent paths that you see companies be willing to, to hire from like that marketing leader perspective. So I definitely think there's like no harm in, in definitely having skills in those sectors of all other sectors, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. It's great to hear about the different paths that you can take to that marketing leadership position. And I think one thing I would love to ask you now is because I know you've interviewed hundreds of people and you spoke before we came on air that the G2 marketing team has grown from around five to 75 in the two years you've been CMO. And so a big responsibility for a CMO is to build a world-class marketing team. So I'd love to know what are some of the qualities characteristics and skills that you're looking for in marketers when it comes to hiring people to join your team? Yeah, good question. I mean, I think I would say that the to at G2, we have a really unique culture, I think, and it's called the peak culture and it stands for performance, entrepreneurial spirit, authenticity, and kindness. And they're sort of the values that we look for in employees and future employees, right? So folks that by performance, we mean like they're data driven, they work the numbers, they hit their goals. 
Um, and then by entrepreneurial spirit, we mean basically they'll kind of roll up their sleeves. They will hustle. They will get it done. They will learn from others. Like they will grind um, while learning to get to where they need to go. Right. They're not going to give up. So um, in terms of peak, they're like two important components. And then on the authenticity and the kindness piece is kind of like, I feel like that encapsulates that idea of like, like no assholes, <laughs> basically. Like we don't want <laughs> folks on our team that, you know, create a shitty culture, even if they are high performance. So broadly speaking, they're kind of like the, the, the few things that we care about. But I think for me specifically in marketing, and actually I really feel like this is, you know, important for all of our hires and it's kind of evidence in the P for performance in peak, but we kind of, I think over index more on this in marketing. It's really around having a growth mindset. And what I mean by that is, you know, something that like when I'm interviewing marketers um, and actually when I'm interviewing anyone, really, if, if sales needs me to interview a sales VP or someone like I'm still thinking about this in my mind, but what I want to see and what I want to like learn from the candidate is, you know, what have you grown? Like what experience do you have growing things? And they could literally say to me, like, I really don't care kind of like how relational their experiencing growth is to, to what they'll be doing at G2, but I want to like learn and hear from them about how they thought about it. So they could say like, they could talk to me about how they grew like a hydroponic garden from one lettuce to a thousand lettuce. Right. And then I would want to learn, okay, like what was the fastest way to get there? Was it about adding more water? Was it about adding more light? Was it about adding more vitamins? Like walk me through that. And just by them walking me through that and me asking discovery questions, I can start to work out like, are they a growth minded person? And so like, you know, as an example, if they said to me, well, you know, we, we did water for a year and then, then maybe a year later we started to notice that growth was kind of flattening. So we tried to do vitamins and then, you know, a year later it started flattening and then we started to like look at different UV lights. Like to me, that would be like a pretty mediocre growth mindset. Like someone that was like, well, yeah, you know, we, we got a few different like crops up and running. Some of them we use U like UVA versus U, UVB light. Um, for some of them, we then kind of tested different soil monitoring systems and filters. And for some of them, then we looked at like different watering temperatures. That's how we worked out that the perfect, you know, kind of like combination was blah, blah, blah. Um, and I, the reason why I kind of give that like example that's like completely unrelated to marketing is that you can truly apply that to any facet of business. So, you know, if you're an email marketer, um, I would always ask an email marketer like, okay, like, tell me like what metrics are your, are you responsible for driving? Um, and a good growth focused email marketer would say, well, you know, I'm responsible for driving $200,000 in like net new revenue source for email marketing. And the way we source that is like every time I send an email to a thousand people, we get a hundred people becoming MQLs and of those MQLs, 50 of them. So 50% convert into sales opportunities and, of those sales opportunities, you know, we close 10 and our average deal size is $20,000. And so 10 deals at $20,000 deals, $200,000, that's how I contribute. And connecting kind of what they're doing to the bottom line of the business, I think is what that growth mindset means. Um, and so, you know, then I would ask them questions like, okay, you know, cause they, you can tell me all of that and I, and I'll just know, okay, cool. You're smart with numbers. You get that. But growth mindset's like taking that a step further. And then I would say, okay, like, well, what was your email marketing source revenue last year? And they may see $200,000 and I'd be like, oh, okay. Like what, why haven't you increased that since then? And then if they would say something like, well, you know, we're only 
you know, we're, we're only responsible for a hundred thousand dollars a month and, you know, we're already doing double. So like we're doing a good job. My mind would be like, okay, well, like you're, you're not the kind of person that I would want on my team because I would want someone that's constantly optimizing, constantly trying to find new channels, maybe is testing Facebook messenger because Facebook messenger has a higher open rate and click through rate than email. And so in email, you might only need to send a thousand emails to get that 200 K a month, but in Facebook messenger, maybe that's only a hundred Facebook messages because of how high the open rate and click through rate is. Um, and if that's the case, then that's a more efficient channel. Like let's do that. Um, and then if we have a thousand subscribers, now we actually have, you know, $2 million worth of revenue because we're driving 10 X that 200 K. Um, and so it's kind of just like really delving into whatever sector they're in, if, whether that be social media marketer or event marketer and kind of trying to understand like, why do they do what they do? Do they try and push for bigger things than they are asked to do they problem solve? And I think all of that's ultimately kind of, you know, exhibited in folks with a growth mindset that are always looking to grow things. Yeah, this is great. And really reinforces the importance of culture when hiring. And it actually reminds me of the New Zealand All Blacks rugby team and the no dickheads rule that they had before they <laughs> yeah. went on to win a couple of World Cups. But uh, but I think it, it's probably not all been rainbows and unicorns. And, and the journey has no doubt been bumpy. And you've spoken quite openly about dealing with mental health challenges. So how have you overcome things like imposter syndrome where you might think you know geez what am i doing here and the anxieties or those times when you've second-guessed yourself or, or questioned your own ability yeah i mean gosh it's tough like i think for it was you know for me kind of where all of that sort of came to like a head i guess would be is that like you know i think for me my anxiety and my like anxiety around performance and my kind of need to move up and you know get to kind of a c-level role by like you know 30 i think for me i didn't know this until i got that role but a lot of it was just driven by you know lack of self-esteem and so the only way i kind of knew to to feel like i was loved and valuable was by like doing a really good job at work and the problem is that there's so much out of your control with that and um you know you can lose a job and then you know effectively your whole worth is gone and so I kind of started to realize that like as I got this dream job of mine um, within a few months I started getting bored and I was like okay I need my next challenge this isn't enough and that was when I kind of realized I was like oh like I've been like working to this for a really long time like this is odd that I would just be over it so quickly um, and so that kind of like helped me at least start to like look deeper inside and work out like what kind of my work meant for my self-esteem and start to create a bit of space there. Um, but I'd say like, you know, throughout my career, the way I really kind of got through it was, gosh, the way I overcame anxieties was mainly by just like over-preparing and just doing a really good job and, and then having my work speak for itself, but which unfortunately then kind of creates a bit of a vicious cycle where you then kind of need to keep putting in more and more to keep over-delivering um, and I wouldn't have, I wouldn't change any of that going back, you know, like I used to work, gosh, I would work all day Saturday, all day Sunday at home on when I was back at kind of exact target and Salesforce and HubSpot even. Um, and I did that early on at G2 as well, early days when I was like building the team and it was still very new. But I think like for me back then that didn't feel like a chore because I like just really loved what I was doing. Um, and I was so focused on achieving goals. And so, I mean, I guess, you know, those companies did a great job in hiring someone like me with that growth mindset, right? Like this kind of compulsive growth mindset need to achieve. 
that's kind of like a dream employee in some ways, but then it also can kind of backfire and, and not work so well. But um, so gosh, I don't know. I'd say like now how I overcome some of those anxieties is it's not even so much about like overcoming them as much as it's like about acknowledging those anxieties and being open about them. And I think that's kind of like half of the challenge today is like we, we do such a good job when we're anxious about something by like, you know, getting on social media and or texting friends or going for a run or having a beer, doing these things that actually like disconnect us from the way we're feeling. And like out of all those examples that I just gave, like obviously you would never think of going for a run when your stress is a bad thing. And it's not, it's like the healthiest way to maybe cope with it. But, but again, it's not really like helping manage through it it's just helping kind of like band-aid over the problem because like you're using running to um, be a bit of like a stress valve when in fact actually if you sat with the anxiety like acknowledged it and said yeah like this is just like an anxious thing like but let's embrace it like you'd actually get less anxiety over time and then not need to run to stop your anxiety you could just run for fun for fun um so I don't know, it's been kind of like a bit of a journey. It still is, right? Like I think, you know, humans, like we're just innately, I think, anxious to a certain degree. And, you know, with so much focus now on social media and careers and achievement, um, I feel like, you know, it's something that like we all need to get better at managing and, and, and embracing. Yeah, this is super valuable to hear. And I think many people are, are going to relate to this and, and know the struggle. And I, I also saw that you joined the board of Bring Change to Mind earlier this year, whose mission is to actually end the stigma surrounding mental health. And I saw on LinkedIn from one of your videos that right now you actually have a collaboration between G2 and Bring Change to Mind where G2 is actually going to donate $10 for every review left. So I was thinking we'll add a link to that in the show notes. Awesome. So Thanks for go that. leave a review after listening to this episode with Ryan and uh, yeah, leave a review and go help out a great course at the same time. And uh, yeah, I think even though these are struggles everyone faces during their career, you, you also need to be confident in your own ability, especially so when it comes to discussing things like promotions, raises, the next opportunity, which is another tough thing to talk about. I think people can often feel uncomfortable discussing raises and promotions, but it's such an important part of 10xing your career growth. So how should people go about this? Yeah, and it's funny because I think like a lot of these questions, like as I'm thinking about it, like they ultimately always come down to like something before the thing, right? And so I think in this instance, <laughs> it's like very similar to before is that like, unless you are that confidant to your boss, that person that always delivers and over delivers and is like someone that people want to be around is like happy is like proactive is enjoyable to be able to be able to work with like I don't even think you should be thinking about raises or promotions right and so I think like and nor have you even like warranted the ability to talk about them in my mind and I'm not saying that like you you're muted you can't talk but like you know if someone came up to me and my team and said they needed a raise or promotion like I would say well like you need to hit your goals <laughs> like <laughs> this is pretty like simple here right like you and and I think I'm pretty open with my team too is like you don't get raises or promotions for doing your job like you're paid to do your job so if your job is to drive you know 100 MQLs like we were talking about before like by you hitting 100 MQLs a month is basically like giving you a tick of the box of like, you won't be fired. <laughs> it's, it's not like anything to write home to your mum or dad about and be proud for. Like, I mean, I shouldn't say like, you shouldn't be proud for hitting your goals, but like, again, like if you're wanting to move up in your career and be promoted, then you're just literally doing the bare minimum by hitting your goals. Um, and I don't think enough people get told that in their career. And so I'm pretty like 
blunt with my team on that. And I think they appreciate it because like there's no missed expectations around performance. And when I mean like when you perform, like that's overperforming and that's the only way to get promoted at G2 um, is to like do above and beyond. Um, and so I think kind of, you know, when thinking about, yeah, how do you talk about races or promotions? Like step one is like, work out what matters to your boss, work out what results you need to hit and then work out what areas they would love to see you overachieve in and then do that. Um, and then like the, how you go about actually like having that conversation is really, really easy. Um, because you know, it's, it, again, it just comes down to like a, a fair decision. And if your boss is fair, which most bosses are, they'll, they'll understand that. Yeah, this is great. And I've also heard that you would also give recommendations and references to all members of your team if they actually wanted to move on to a new job. So could you actually tell us a little bit more about that as a follow-up? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think for me, like I kind of recognize that, you know, I won't be with G2 forever, like, and nor should people on my team A, be told that they should be with G2 forever, nor like B, be needed to kind of like lie and pretend like they will be there forever. Because like the reality is like, there's only so many challenges and so many things that people can do at G2, right? Um, and so, so A, I think I'm just like pretty realistic with people about that. Um, and then also it's kind of comes down to like, if people are looking at other roles, which, you know, I don't discourage because, you know, if you're not happy um, or you think, you know, you're worth more money and someone's willing to pay that, like find out. Um, and I, I'm not saying that like, just because someone's willing to pay you more means that we will then match that and keep you. That's definitely not true. Um, but if you, if you are one of those valuable people that I just mentioned that always delivers, then gosh, like we're not going to want to let you leave. So we will naturally try and give you more, um, you know, authority, like more, um, abilities to drive more change at G2 a promotion or pay if that, if that is fair. Um, and, but I think I also understand that, you know, there's some experiences that we can't give, right? So if someone on my team was a super high performer and they wanted to, um, you know, they wanted to get like more kind of like consumer, consumer, um, experience with like marketing a hardware product, like a Peloton as an example, right? Like it's, it's going to be impossible for me to give them that experience at G2. So naturally, like, I don't want to like hold on to a person like that um, if they're not going to be happy. So I want them to make sure that they can get the best role possible for them because like they will then leave G2. They'll leave working for me with really positive kind of like feelings towards us. They will refer us like other employees in the future. If they interview a great marketer, that's not the best fit for them, but could be a fit for us. They'll refer business. Like it's just a win-win really. And then, you know, it's a win-win for you too, having like more marketers in different industries and segments because over time you will change too. And then maybe you can pull them back into your team because they've had a great experience. So um, yeah, I, I'm, I think I'm just like very realistic and kind of like fair with that sort of a thing. If someone does great work for me and they're looking for a challenge that I can't give, like, hell yeah, I want to help them find the best next role. Um, and I'll also be really real with them too and let them know if I think that the role they're going for is, is not a good role because they're just going at it because of the money increase that, that I've made those mistakes in my past. And like, it's not best to always go for the highest paid role because there's a reason why they're paying more, right? It's because the role of the company or something isn't great. Um, but most people don't realize that. Yeah, absolutely. This is so good to hear. And when you think about it, it makes total sense, but 
it's not practiced so often. So I think it's really good to think about changing our mindset when it comes to the growth and development of, of people in, in our teams and their careers. And I think one final question before we move on to the final Fast Five Challenge and, and looking back on your career so far, you've done so much, you've worked at some amazing companies and you're one of the world's most influential CMOs. So what are the reasons you've been able to progress and develop so rapidly? Can you pinpoint some key factors since that advice would be super valuable to hear? Yeah, I mean, I think the you know, if the three reasons kind of like I've been able to progress and develop rapidly is just like, you know, like just an innate drive to overachieve results. Like I'm just like a, I'm a hyper competitive person. And I always have been um, with work anyways. Like I'm not really, I'm not competitive at all outside of my professional life, weirdly. Like I'm, I don't know, that's kind of weird. I should probably examine that more. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm not very competitive outside of work but in work I'm hyper competitive and so for me that then translates in the sense of like earlier on in my career when I was running marketing for Asia Pacific I just was so competitive with the marketing leader for Europe and the Middle East and so competitive with the marketing leader for Latin America Um, and so like I would always need to make sure that my programs were like delivering better ROI more revenue more efficiency um, and so because I was just so competitive, like I was able to really always show the results. And I think like that has been really key to helping. So I'd say like, you know, you know, being really driven, you know, being really results oriented and they, those two things pair really nicely together. Um, and I think the third thing is that I've just always been really good at speaking up for myself. And I think, as I mentioned earlier, when when you drive results and you're really driven, you have more of a pedestal to stand on to drive your own initiatives, to, to kind of lobby for your team, to lobby for more opportunities. And so I think, you know, between being super driven, being super data focused and growth focused, and then being super kind of outspoken, um, that I think is really why I've been able to progress to where I've gotten to. And I think, you know, what I would add on kind of like to the question earlier about like managing up is that I think most people, most people are afraid to tell their manager or their boss kind of the hard truths. And if you are that high performance individual that I was talking about earlier, um, that's like a really unique opportunity to be able to tell your boss things that they're probably not hearing from anyone else. And that then makes you really valuable as an asset to your boss, because now they're getting kind of like a pulse on kind of how other people are viewing things and maybe like what stuff people aren't telling them, you're helping them see that. Um, and I think that to me really helped me. So I've always been like, you know, whether in leadership meetings, I'm, I feel like I'm always the person that like says the thing that like my CEO doesn't want to hear, but because I've built such a strong relationship with him, um, I have that ability where I can do that. Um, and doesn't mean that I'm always right necessarily, but I think it means that like people will listen to me because um, I'm not just telling you what I think you want to hear. I'm telling you what I think you need to hear. And um, so, yeah, I think they're just some of the kind of the things that just luckily have kind of like fallen into place for me to help me get to where I have gotten. Yeah, absolutely. It's fantastic to hear. And I think now we could actually move on to the closing questions and our fast five challenge. So to round things out, Ryan, all I will do is ask five questions and all you need to do is answer as quickly as possible. So are you ready? Yeah, sure. Awesome. So 
First question, what's the one book you would recommend others to read? I'm not going to give you one. I'm going to give you two. My, my marketing book would be um, Trust Me, I'm Lying by Ryan Holiday. Amazing for like anyone in marketing, especially PR people. And then my other book for like just life would be The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. Just like a really great book. I read it once a year. It's just it's beautiful. Awesome. Second question, a SaaS company you love and why? Fuck, there's so many SaaS companies <laughs> that I love, um, given that's been my whole career. But I would say, um, I have to say HubSpot, I think. Just, you know, HubSpot is just, I learned so much there, have such fond memories and like just love their leadership team. They're just a really smart group of people that I learned so much from. Um, and I also love Zoom um, because of their recent IPO and their S1 filings. I just love the way they run that business. Super um, efficient. And Eric Wan, their CEO, is just like a god when it comes to kind of like putting their customers at the center of everything they do. And they're just like advocates for, for, for G2. So we love them. Awesome. Awesome. Third question. Favorite place to read about marketing online? You know, I really don't have that many, to be honest. Um, I kind of, I'm more about actually like identifying who are really great marketers and really just great, like smart humans. And then I will follow them on all the channels, Quora, Medium, Twitter, but I'm not going to like any of those platforms specifically or publications necessarily for for like reading regularly. It's more like I care about like what a few people think and write about and I just read read their stuff. Perfect. Fourth question, most important growth metric. Gosh, that's a good one. I, I don't know if I have a most important growth metric. Um, I've, Cause I feel like, you know, when I think about it, like CAC and like LTV are super important, but at the, they're super important, but like, they're just so kind of like far down the funnel and longer term that I think like I live more in the day to day of just like, daily growth in the sense of you know how much are you growing your numbers by daily weekly monthly etc so yeah sorry i don't have a perfect answer for that one no that's good and the fifth and final question what would be your best piece of advice for fellow marketers i think my best piece of advice for fellow marketers would be like to not be afraid of taking risks i think that's been another thing that's just been kind of like a core mark of my career is that like I've always been kind of like the riskier marketer. And I think that kind of aligns with my like, you know, those three things I mentioned earlier about like kind of like having like, like being having a competitive drive has meant that like, I've always not been afraid to like do things bigger or like more riskier, but with bigger reward than my peers. And that has helped me get noticed at the companies I work for, which has helped me get promoted faster. So I think like, don't be afraid to take like well calculated risks. Absolutely. So everyone go out, take some risks after listening to this. So Ryan, I have to thank you so, so much for coming on the podcast. This was incredible. I, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to share your story and career advice with us. It was a true, true pleasure Thanks, having you on the show. Yeah, nice to chat with you too. That was Ryan Benici on how to 10x your career growth. And you can find Ryan on Twitter at Ryan Benici. And if you enjoyed this episode, then we'd absolutely love it if you could leave us a review and feedback on Apple Podcasts. As ever, if you have any other thoughts or feedback, then you're always welcome to reach out to me on Twitter at Nordic Edward or connect on LinkedIn. So thank you so much for listening to the Growth of Podcast brought to you by growth marketing agency Advance B2B. This is your host, Edward Ford, signing off and make sure you check out advancedb2b.com for more content and resources on everything B2B SaaS growth. It's our job to tell better stories. And always remember, it's the risk takers that are